On today's episode, it's a new year and we're heading up to Capitol Hill. We look at two forces shaping what things will look like in Congress, the lingering ramifications of the January 6th riots, and the surprising leadership of Democratic Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. So this is an episode that's got me thinking about that famous William Faulkner quote, the past is never dead, it's not even past. It's been three years now since rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol trying to overturn the 2020 presidential election, a riot that resulted in millions of dollars in damages, hundreds of injuries, and at least two deaths. Three years later, some Republicans are eager to move past this, as you'll soon hear, but the ramifications from the riot, both political and psychological, are not even close to being resolved. Bloomberg government's Jonathan Tamari recently wrote a story about these ramifications, and he actually quantified how the mistrust that remains after January 6th has had a tangible impact on the type of legislation that gets worked on up there. Tamari and I also talked about his meeting with Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic House Minority Leader who took over from political giant Nancy Pelosi one year ago. He says Jeffries has strong support from Democrats right now, despite approaching his job very differently than his predecessor did. But it's unclear if that will last heading into next year. But first, Jonathan and I talk about the riots. He says, for an example of how they're still shaping what happens on Capitol Hill, look to former Speaker Kevin McCarthy and his failed last-ditch attempt to stay in office with Democratic support. Yeah, and this is really one of the key pieces that that kind of was the the origin of this story and why I started reporting this story out. If you remember, there was this day when we knew Republicans were going to vote against Speaker McCarthy, and the question was whether Democrats were going to support him and keep him in office or if they were going to support the move to remove him. So it's really almost in the Democratic hands control. Hakeem Jeffries spoke about this earlier today on MSNBC. And Democrats pretty much unanimously came out and said they were going to remove him. And when we asked them why, they kept saying they could couldn't trust him. And then I went a little deeper and I said, well, why can't you trust him? And I kept hearing January 6th as being an example. In fact, uh, Jim McGovern, who was the Democrat who was presiding over the House chamber when they went into recess because of the riot, uh, he just said, I was here on January 6th. And that is a day that it, it showed me how much that day is still kind of seared in Democrats' minds as such a dividing line in Congress and, and something that colors how they view their Republican colleagues, in particular Republicans who are in leadership at that time. And we'll get to the mental and psychological ripple effects uh, in a little bit, but I want to get at kind of an irony that your story pointed out, which is that Democrats refuse to support Kevin McCarthy partially or maybe mainly over January 6th, but that means that his replacement was Mike Johnson, who arguably had a stance on January 6th that Democrats probably find more objectionable. Well, what happened there? Yeah, and that's one of the big risks that Democrats took in getting rid of McCarthy or supporting the move to get rid of McCarthy is that there was no telling what would come after him except the one trend that has been consistent in the Republican Party for well more than a decade, uh, even going beyond that, is 
they've become much more conservative and much more of a disruptive party, as we see with Donald Trump as, as the kind of figurehead of the Republican Party. But in the end, Democrats didn't have a lot of say in who would replace McCarthy. They could help unseat him, but they really couldn't help replace him because that was a decision made entirely within the Republican conference. And I think a lot of Democrats didn't even know who Mike Johnson was, let alone exactly what he did that day. And it's not just that, you know, what he did in the lead up to the riot and in the moments before the riot, but also afterward that he, you know, like a lot of other Republicans, to be fair, uh, sort of downplayed uh, the role of the riot and, and sort of how much discussion, you know, well, I think in your story, you mentioned that a lot of Republicans are saying, let's move on. That was three years ago. You know, why are we still focused on this? Right. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, and, and like many Republicans, in fact, in the days immediately after the riot, he condemned the rioters and he had very strong words about th- what they did. But over time, that has really softened in the Republican Party. And another person I spoke to, a congressman, Andrew Clyde from Georgia, he was the one who said, you know, I can't believe Democrats are still talking about this. That's three years ago. Let's get over it. Johnson has started to release a security video from the Capitol. And he says that it's because he doesn't think there should be a partisan narrative around what happened, which basically is implying that he thinks it's that the violence has been overstated, which is something that a lot of Republicans have said, uh, including Donald Trump, who's talked about giving mass pardons if he's uh, reelected to his president again. So Democrats are not ready to move on, though, from January 6th. And I think that your story detailed why, because they're unable to move on mentally and psychologically from January 6th, uh, understandably. Can you get into that a little bit about the sort of, you know, the actual uh, mental toll that that is still taking on many staffers and members themselves? Yeah, I mean, there are members who say that they have had to go through counseling and therapy to kind of deal with it as a post-traumatic stress moment. Um, They really thought that their lives were in danger and that they might have been killed while they were waiting in the House gallery. And people did not know what was coming through those doors. I was in the House gallery that day as well. And when the windows started breaking, you had no idea what was going to come in behind them or, or what was coming through those doors at that moment. And so there's a few elements to why Democrats are, are still think about this and why it still comes up for them. For one thing, they're going back to work in the very building where they were afraid for their lives. And I spoke to Congresswoman Annie Custer, who was in the gallery that day, and she still has nightmares about it. She still says she still wakes up screaming some days. And she told me about a day she was in the cafeteria or the house dining room And there was a major protest nearby, totally unrelated to this issue. But a staffer there was telling her about how it was bringing back the memories of the day that that protest built outside the Capitol and the feeling of threats. And there are protests, as you know, that happen in Washington all the time. It's part of of the democracy. right? It's part of working at the Capitol. But uh, it brings back memories. And it's also worth noting, we're talking about members of Congress themselves who are mentally and psychologically affected by the riots. But for every member, there are dozens and dozens of staffers, not just uh, political staffers, but, you know, administrative staffers, people who do, you know, day to day, very sort of prosaic jobs on the Hill who were also affected, who were also there that day. So we're not just talking about a couple hundred elected officials. It's much, much more beyond that. Yeah, that story I was telling you about Annie Custer, the person she was talking to who was having the memories was a person who worked in the dining room. And he had to hide the dining room staff that day from the rioters. Uh, And then the other side of it is not only kind of the, the personal experience, but there is also the professional relationships that have been really affected. 
another person I spoke to was Dan Kildee, congressman from Michigan, was also in the gallery that day. And he talked about how, look, I mean, in Congress, you know, trust is really the coin of the realm, as people say. It is the way that any bipartisan deals get done is that you have to trust that you can sit down with somebody, have a good faith negotiation. They're not going to leak what you're talking about. And he said that trust was really broken because he can't look at Republicans the same way he once did. He said they'll never have the same kind of respect they once did from him and that he can work with them on certain issues. He's gotten over it. A number of Democrats had initially said they would not work with any Republicans who voted against the election result. And they have others have said, listen, you know, it's divided government. That's not really tenable, but they can't respect people to look them in the eye the same way that they once did. And that really undermines cooperation. And it shows why, going back to the speaker race, why there was so little trust between Democrats and Republican leaders. And we should say Congressman Kildee is retiring. He's he's not he's chosen not to run for reelection this year. I'm sure there are a lot of reasons why he decided to do that. But it sounds like January 6th was at least one of those reasons. I mean, he said there was a wide range. He's had some health issues, but he did say, listen, he's been in Congress for over a decade. Before that, his uncle was a congressman. So he had spent a lot of time in the Capitol. And he felt like January 6th is maybe the worst symptom of a much longer trend of dysfunction and uh, not just partisanship, but like genuine um, lust for power that is pushing people over the edge. And, and he saw it as just a really bad symptom of an even worse, wider trend. We're talking about the qualitative side of this, you know, the human experience of January 6th. But your story even went further and got to the quantitative side of it, which is, you know, some research that you found about how, you know, this has affected bipartisanship in Congress. Can you talk about some research that you found from Jason Roberts and James Curry, two political science professors that that really try to quantify just what's going on here. Yeah. And this really spoke to that issue I was talking about, about trust being the coin of the realm and leading to bipartisanship. So they did a study of bills introduced by Republicans who had voted against the election. Uh, election deniers is how they put it in their paper. And even though there's so much partisanship in Washington, there's a lot of little things that happen very quietly that are usually done in a bipartisan manner to make it go smoothly. And what they found was that Previously, those Republicans who voted against the election, somewhere between 55 to 60 percent of their bills had a Democratic co-sponsor. After the riot, only 23 percent of their bills had a Democratic co-sponsor. It's so a see, huge drop. It's a huge drop. It's more than half, uh, uh, more than 50 percent drop off. And it shows that that lack of trust that exists. And they also say that these small bills are the things that kind of build relationships that allow you to get to the bigger issues. And so if there's not cooperation on these small things, it makes it all but impossible that any of the big things are going to get solved in a bipartisan way. And that is, as you point out, just a really quantitative look at what the effects are, that it's not just an emotional response, but it does have a practical uh, effect on how Congress is doing its work. Changing subjects here a little bit, uh, you know, you earlier wrote a profile of Hakeem Jeffries, who is the Democratic leader in the House, the minority leader. Um, you know, that was a while ago, but it was such an interesting story. I really want to ask you about that because I feel like he's someone who we just don't really know a lot about. He took over for Nancy Pelosi, who we knew uh, almost everything about. Uh, and now he's still pretty new in his job. 
It sounds like his style of leadership is so different from hers. Can you get into that a little bit about how they differ? Yeah, I mean, Pelosi had a reputation after so many years leading the Democrats as this iron-fisted tactician who really could steer the Democratic caucus in whichever way she thought was best and would kind of determine the direction she wanted to go and would get the votes that she needed to push the party that way. Um, Jeffries is a very different figure. He doesn't have the long history that she has. She doesn't have the reputation that she has. Um, You know, she's was kind of, as one member said to me, was kind of up on a pedestal for a lot of people because she had been a legend within the Democratic Party for so long and Jeffries is newer. And so he's had to take much more of a um, conciliatory approach, a much more consensus building approach where he meets with the different factions of the Democratic Party regularly. And everybody describes him the word that kept coming up was listener. You know? Oh, uh, I noticed that. Uh, I actually started to count the times in your story the word listen or listener or listening came up, and it was a lot. Everyone said, talked about his listening ability. He listens. Yeah, and that was intentional. I usually really try to avoid repetition, well, yeah, but I wanted yeah, yeah. to drive that point home right. that it came up with everybody. Um And so that is kind of his style, is that he listens to people and he tries to come to what he calls the highest common denominator within the caucus. And he's kind of has to do that because he doesn't have that history that Pelosi has as the leader. Um, And it's shown, though, in that where you see the Republican conference, even though they're in the majority, they are so typically fractured and struggling to get their bills passed. We've seen that this has given Democrats an unusual amount of leverage in the House because Republicans have really struggled to stay together and pass their own bills, and they've had to rely on Democrats to get major bills through. The Democrats, by sticking together, are able to kind of shape the legislation or say, we won't vote for this. We will only vote for something that's a little more moderate. Uh, And that's really unusual for the minority in the House. Speaking of really unusual things, uh, you met uh, Minority Leader Jeffries uh, in uh, his district in Brooklyn, but not in his offices. Uh, What was that about? Why did you... Uh, meet with him outside of his offices in a diner, I get the sense. Uh, what, what what was the story behind that? Yeah, I mean, I had asked for a long time to get a chance to kind of see him kind of out of Washington and to see kind of where he came from to try to understand a little bit more about his approach to politics and what might have shaped him as a person and as a politician. So I saw him speaking at a church on a Sunday afternoon service, and then he and I sat down at a, at a diner out there in Brooklyn, a uh, Lots of cheesecakes, lots of classic New York kind of desserts there. And um, and you could kind of see a little bit about where you talk about him being a consensus builder who can kind of work in a lot of different rooms. You know, this church that he went to was right on the edge of two different neighborhoods, Bedford-Stuyvesant and Clinton Hill. And it's an area of Brooklyn where kind of gentrification and you know, big money remodeling and million dollar brownstones run up against some areas that are still have a lot of poverty and crime. And you kind of see these worlds melding together kind of physically. um, And he's and, and metaphorically, he's straddling both of these worlds. He grew up in Crown Heights and he talks about growing up during the crack epidemic of the 80s and violence being all around. But he goes on to a career in in major law firms, a career in the state legislature, now Congress. And so he's a person who can work very different sides of democratic politics from the real kind of, you know, urban centers to the kind of elite donor world. Um, And that's something that his democratic colleagues say allows him to kind of really 
work all sides of the caucus as well and kind of understand from the moderates to the liberals, from people in the suburbs to people who represent cities and kind of bring those perspectives together. That's really interesting. Okay, finally, let's look ahead. Uh, We just started the new year, but I want to look ahead to the new new year, which is 2025. You know, obviously, this is huge speculation. The election isn't until November. Um, But there's a very good chance that Democrats could take back the House. The uh, Republicans' majority is extraordinarily small. I want to float a scenario by you and, and tell me what you think and tell me if you think this is crazy. What if Democrats do take back the House, but their majority is also very, very small, maybe just a couple seats? Could we see uh, what happened to Kevin McCarthy also happened to Hakeem Jeffries, where, you know, he has trouble even becoming speaker because there are different factions in the Democratic Party. And then there's sort of a rump faction within the Democratic majority in the House that kind of holds him hostage. Is that possible? Or do you think the Democratic Party is just in a different place, in a different mindset than Republicans are right now? I kind of think both parts of your question are true and possible. Um, it is possible that if he they end up with a small majority, which is a real possibility, um, that, that a lot of different elements of the Democratic Party, same as Republicans, will see that as leverage. And they'll say, well, he needs our votes and any five or six or seven of us can deny him the votes he needs unless he makes concessions that we want. Um, so he could find himself in the very same place. I mean, I talked about how unified Democrats have been. It's important to note it's easier to be unified when you're the minority and you're just kind of voting against the majority and you can kind of just say no. It's a different thing when you're kind of actively making legislation and actively making policy and people, you know, Democrats can unite in opposing Kevin McCarthy and opposing Donald Trump. But when it comes to making a health care proposal or a tax proposal, different elements of the party are going to want different things. Or a speaker proposal. I mean, let's say Democrats do take back the majority. Uh, you know, Hakeem Jeffries will be obviously the front runner to be speaker, but I don't think he'll be the only one. I don't think that I, I can't imagine a situation where no one else runs for speaker aside from uh, Hakeem Jeffries. Well, that I'm not sure. They really? have a pretty unified leadership uh, team. And, mm. and, Interesting. and I think it, it helps them that they have a leadership team that is um, much younger than the Democrats have had in the past. They're all kind of in their 40s yeah. and 50s, yeah. ethnically diverse or geographically diverse. Um, so I think that helps them. And I think, well, I just said it's possible that you could see Democrats holding their leaders hostage. That hasn't been the case in the Democratic Party the same way it's been in the Republican Party. That element of disruption is much more prevalent on the Republican side. You know, they nominated and elected Donald Trump. Democrats have stuck with Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. You know, Bernie Sanders had a run, but he ultimately didn't win. Uh, there is a, you know, a far left wing of the Democratic Party, but they exert a lot more less influence over their agenda than the far right on the Republican side. And that's partly because, you know, Republicans, they want smaller government. So they tend to be OK with the idea that maybe the government kind of grinds to a halt. That, doesn't, that, that nothing gets done. Yeah, that's not bad to some of them. Most Democrats want to see the government do something and their party has not been as disruptive, at least not to this point. That is the direction politics is going generally, so we'll see if that sweeps into their party. But so far, Democrats have been a little more pragmatic and a little more unified. Well, Jonathan, uh, we'll have you back on the podcast this time next year, uh, if not sooner. 
Uh, but certainly by then we'll know the answers to all these questions. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much uh, for talking. That was Jonathan Tamari with Bloomberg Government. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter. And our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Kimberly Robinson. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the yachts and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.